What's up, everyone? This is episode number eight of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and I'm excited to bring you another week's worth of hobby chatter. Now, I know that sounds like it's just an intro, but I mean that. I legitimately enjoy doing this. Let's start off with some playoff chatter, though. As you guys know, the playoffs are still in full swing. At the time of this recording, we have the Bucks beating the Celtics 2-1 right now. Um, interesting kind of effect of that. You see Giannis cards. People really aren't sure what to do with them. His stuff kind of started going crazy, and you'd think that there would be this mad rush to sell everything, but I think there's still a lot of people out there right now that are hesitant, and they're just holding on to their stuff, which shows you that people think that maybe he hasn't quite reached his peak. We've got the 76ers beating the Raptors 2-1. We have Golden State beating Houston 2 games to 1. And then we have the Trailblazers beating the Nuggets 2-1 right now after that insane four overtime game i confess i had a flight the next morning i went to bed in the third quarter i regret it um speaking of of a flight i'm actually recording this a day or two later than i normally would some of you might have noticed that i had a death in the family and i flew to indiana for the funeral midweek um but since i was there you know when in rome i decided to kind of scout out some of the basketball related stuff some of the hobby-related stuff. So I took a trip to the IndyCard Exchange, which is uh, one of the card stores there. Talked to Conrad, who was working in the shop that day. I bought a box of 2016-2017 Revolution. Didn't really get anything of note in it. I did get a LeBron Astro, which is a pretty nice-looking card. I think I'm going to keep that for the collection. Um, I also went and saw the Reggie Mural. If you don't know, there's a a giant Reggie Miller Mural um, that's been added since the last time I was there. So you might have seen it on the podcast Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. I tagged Reggie Miller in my photo. You know, I said, when in Rome, I got to seek out this Reggie mural. He liked it. He reposted it on his story. So that was pretty exciting to me. It made for a pretty good end to the week. Um, Now, as far as the main content today, um, I've mentioned this the last couple of episodes, but I've really been wanting to talk about National Treasures, and it's finally time to do that. I feel like now that the product has been out a couple of weeks, I can give the product more of a fair and objective take. So in order to do that, I'm going to break it down as follows. I want to give you guys sort of the history of the brand. I want to give my rendition of a breakdown of the checklist. I want to talk a little bit about group breaking, which might seem out of place there, but I I haven't really discussed group breaking on the show before, and I think that will provide a good segue to do so. And then finally, I want to talk about pricing and reception. So let's start off with um, just a quick little recap of the history of the brand. National Treasures Lineage, is it actually started as a football product from Playoff. Remember when Panini entered the basketball game, they purchased Playoff and that became Panini America. So as far as the um, football version, it debuted as a standalone product in 2006. The basketball version of it came out in 2009, which was Panini's first year with the license. And the product debuted, it was their first high-end basketball release at $400 a box. We've seen it every every year since then, except for the 2011-2012 season. For those of you that were around, you remember there was an, was an NBA lockout then. We didn't have a lot of sets come out. 
Those rookies were then included in the 2012 and 2013 products, which made that a super popular release, and it was super loaded. 2017-2018 was the first year for first off the line in, in basketball as far as National Treasures. First off the line came out the year before that, but that was the first National Treasures release, and then that leads us to this year. Now, as I've discussed before, collectors really like brand continuity. I think the Prism Rookie card and the Prism Silver have become the more attainable staple rookie cards or the must-haves, you can call them. And then the National Treasures RPA, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is a rookie patch auto. Numbered to 99 or really to any numbering have established themselves as the higher end, but also attainable must-have. Um, this year's setup is, is very similar to the previous years. There are 10 cards total. Eight of those are autos or memorabilia. You have one base card and you have one printing plate. Okay, so with that being said, let me dive into this year's checklist real quick. I want to try and avoid talking about price at the start, and I just want to talk about content. This product has a lot of returning sets like Clutch Factor. You've got the Colossal Memorabilia Autos. You have Timelines. You have Treasure Tags. You have Finals Nameplates. And then, of course, you have your Rookie Patch Autos. Over the last couple of years, we've had a set of one-on-one autos in the set called Personalized, and the idea was that so many autographs would be produced and they would be signed by a specific player and then personalized with some sort of special message in addition to it as well. Not every player is personalized in the past like they were instructed, but we have seen some pretty cool Kobe and Dirk inscriptions before. So you would hope then seeing the mistakes of the past or seeing the blunders of the past where players either didn't know what to do or didn't care, that they might make their instructions more clear for athletes this year. There were 90 total autos, which is not 90 players, but 90 autos total for this year's personalized set. The checklist is 1 to 100, but 31 through 40 are missing, so I'm wondering if we'll see that on the reward side at some point. But they're all desirable players. They're mostly bigger name rookies, but then you have Kobe, you have Dirk, you have Durant. Um, I haven't seen a lot of them, but the ones I've had seen, they don't have a lot of inscriptions, or they were barely inscriptions, you know, like eight-time All-Star. Um, nothing like we used to get in some of the tops and upper deck sets where, like, I remember Tayshaun Prince was Motown Prince. TJ Ford was Longhorn Legend. So they had some really cool creative inscriptions in the past, I have seen some from Panini. I'm not seeing a lot from this set right now. Another thing I want to take note of when I'm looking through this checklist is in the past, National Treasures was always exciting to me because it marked the first time that we saw patches for players that had changed teams in a lot of sets, at least. I know the last time this happened, I was excited about it was a couple years ago with Jeff Teague. When the Pacers um, traded for Jeff Teague, I wanted a Jeff Teague Pacers patch. And the first time we saw that was National Treasures. This time we have a handful of big name players with mismatched patches, headlined by LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard. Um, in fact, the sell sheet actually showed Kawhi Leonard with a Raptors patch and auto. And then if you look at the product, they're all Spurs. So this is another example of a bait and switch from Panini. Um, I hate to see this on a higher end set. I think they should save all of these older patches. I know they need to get rid of them. I know they're not going to just let them sit there. I wish they'd save them all for throwback sets or maybe some of the lower end products. Uh, my personal favorites from the checklist this year are any set with jumbo patches. Um, you have the retro materials, which I actually just won the Mark Jackson 
one of one for $33. That was my first National Treasures card this year. Um, the colossal sets look great. The finals nameplates. So overall, if you're into memorabilia cards, there are some pretty good options in this set. A few other non-rookie observations that I had from the start here. There are a lot more stickers than I would like to see in a high-end product. On the flip side of that, there are not a lot of redemptions. So I guess you could say that's a good thing. But I don't know. I, I wish we could get to a point someday where we have more on card and less redemptions. I know that's a dream, but this is a higher end product. There's no Curry autos. There's very few Giannis autos. Um, we have the return of Anthony Davis autos. We thought those were kind of done for good. It looks like there's one small jersey set for Kobe, but no patches or very few patches. Given his relationship with Panini in the past and the cost of acquiring his game-worn stuff, which they've already gone through some warm-ups for him too. I wouldn't be surprised to see Kobe maybe initiate Panini's retired player, player-worn era for basketball, which if you follow football at all, this has not gone over well with football. You get to where there are some recently retired football players that now have a bunch of new patch cards and they're all just player-worn instead of game-worn. However, people keep buying. As for the rookies... Um, to help me analyze this, I used a checklist and also a really helpful website that's out there right now called 130point, which is 130point.com. Uh, I intended to have the creator of that site on this week, but like I said, I had to travel out of town, so um, I'll talk with him at another big release at some point. But if you look at the stats here, Luca has the most total hits in the product. He has no base, it's all autos or memorabilia cards, and the number of cards for him is over 100 cards higher than the next rookie, which is Okobo. Um, so that tells you that obviously they're trying to load this product up with Luka because they want to move this product. As far as RPAs go, each player has, it looks like 212 total RPAs, where you know it used to be a, a fairly limited number. They've upped that number quite a bit. Um, as far as vertical RPAs, you have the one that's out of 99, one out of 10, one out of 5, and then the Logo Man out of 1. You have the first off-the-line exclusives numbered to 20 and numbered to 3. There's also a horizontal option, which for those of you that maybe are new to this, all of them used to be horizontal prior to 2013 and 14, I believe. But the horizontal releases in this one, we have... 49 of them and then 25 so there's two versions of that so like I said that's over 212 total RPAs per player um, several teams have multiple RPAs I know the Mavericks have three so a lot of people are getting really disappointed when they see that logo and it's someone else um, the Hawks have three the Knicks have three there are a couple redemptions I believe I've seen Kevin Knox and Chandler Hutchinson there might be some more those are the ones that I recall seeing um, now, this can be a really big deal because the quality of the patch is a major deciding factor on what someone will pay. I remember we saw this play out with Donovan Mitchell. People were kind of anxious on what kind of patch they were going to end up getting back because you can have two cards numbered to 99, but if one patch is a lot better than the others, then obviously that's going to merit a, a somewhat of a premium. Um, another thing I've seen, we have Rookie Logo Man numbered to five which these are horizontal and they're not autographed these intrigue me a little bit because i feel like the better players sell really high and then the lower tier players don't sell for high enough there are a lot of other things that could be said for this checklist but that was my attempt to keep it within a certain time frame here 
with all of that being said, the lack of Curry autos, the lack of Kobe Prime, the influx of Luka cards, the exclusive RPAs, the emphasis on RPAs, it's obvious that Panini is aware that National Treasure's rookie brand establishment is a really big deal for people, and they're relying on that to push the product. And from the, the breaks that I've seen, it seems like this product is pretty much feast or famine. Um, I even saw one, speaking of feast, I saw one that had two veteran logo man autos back to back. I think it was Dirk and Gordon Hayward. And this is in a hand-packed product, mind you. You'd think that um, this would be a pretty rough sell now, considering that hobby boxes are in the $1,400 range. And first off, the line are somewhere between $2,200 and $2,500 still. Um, there are definitely people out there who can afford personal box and personal case breaks, but at the end of the day, if you look at the cost per box here, and obviously the, the results and the, the contents are different, but a product like this, it's still 14 times the cost of a product like Court Kings. It's six or seven times the cost of a product uh, like Prism. So how does your average Joe get in on the fun? Like I'm never going to pay $1,400 for a box. So how could I possibly get into this? And maybe you're a new collector you want to get some national treasures, how do you get into this? Well, the answer that a lot of people have been turning to for years is called group breaking. Okay, so what is group breaking? The idea behind group breaking is that one main breaker or host purchases a box or case and then others purchase spots in some capacity to cover the overall cost. So for instance, some breaks will have team spots, like you could buy just the Pacers or just the Mavericks, or some have player spots. There are more complicated methods of splitting the case into different spots, but the idea is still the same. The point was to make things affordable. Now, I would say this has definitely been popularized in the online era, but people have been splitting the cost of boxes for several decades at least. So let's see why. The positives here. Uh, number one, you don't have to leave the house and you can watch it online. Um, not everyone has access to a brick and mortar shop, or some shops really just don't get a lot of good products into bust. It also doubles as an entertainment cost. A lot of people like ripping packs in person, but there's still this social aspect to it where everyone likes to gather together and maybe chat about the hits and you have people that are regular customers. A couple days ago, I saw someone com compare it to a man or a woman going into a bar to get a drink. Sure, you could have that same drink at home for much cheaper, but you miss out on the social aspect. And for some people, that's worth quite a bit. Next, and I've alluded to this already, but it's a relatively low cost compared to buying an entire case of a product. I've also heard people mention that you don't end up with a bunch of base cards that you have to sort through, which there are a lot of people that like sorting through base cards. So it just, it all depends on what you're into. And then finally, there are some people that just like the randomness of the breaks as opposed to using that money to buy certain specific cards that they want. They like the unpredictability factor involved here. So those are the positives, and I think they're definitely worth considering, but I also want to take a look at the negatives here. First and foremost, this is gambling plain and simple, and people can get addicted to it. And I'm not here to tell you to do it or to don't do it, um, but it, I'm just going to, to lay that out. That's the most obvious negative to it, is that gambling could result in some bad consequences. I've seen some people say though that there are very similar cons to buying boxes of your owns you could end up with a, a very low return 
For example, I talked about the box of revolution that I opened up at the shop at the the intro to today's episode, and I maybe got $15 worth of cards out of it, and the box was $60, so it really wasn't a great break or even a good break at all, and it was pretty quick. There wasn't a lot of an experience cost. Some of the breakers, when you are breaking, they're selling you on a break to make it sound like they're providing you with a service, like you need them. Um, And I know there are some hidden costs associated with the breaking, but sometimes you do need to do the math. Some of these guys, which especially the bigger name breakers, they're doing pretty well right now. Um, But they don't, however, typically warn you about the severity of gambling. If we go back to that point, it's not to say that it's their place, but I find it interesting if you look at the majority of state lotteries and you look at Powerball and you look at Mega Ball and all these lottery variations, they use some form of the slogan, please play responsibly. And responsibility, mind you, revolves around sound reason, using your brain instead of acting on your own emotions and desires. So if you're new to this or even if you're experienced, you always have to kind of step back at some point and look at your breaking and say, okay, is this worth it? Okay, you have to do your research. Even if you think the costs are okay, you have to look at the people you're breaking with. So it can get kind of complicated. Do your research first. Don't buy into an RPA slot of a team that doesn't have an RPA. Like don't buy Miami Heat this year expecting to get an RPA. You got to be smart. You got to look at the checklist ahead of time. You can lose a lot of money really quick. Okay. That was just my mini little overview of group breaking. I'm not going to say that you should do it or shouldn't do it. That's just some of the sides of it you choose on your own. Now that I've touched on that, though, I want to close with some thoughts on National Treasures pricing because I feel like group breaks have had a major impact on this pricing this year and even the secondary market. I want to preface this by saying that I used mainly eBay sales. I know there are other venues. Um, there are other marketplaces. You've got, you can sell in person. You've got forums. You've got social media and so on eBay's the one where I have the information in front of me, okay? One thing that was pointed out by multiple people is that there was a lot less of this product being broken after the initial first two days, as opposed to the football release, which seemed pretty steady for a while. Some of the RPAs sold very high out the gate, which is to be expected. One thing that I noticed with the Pacers, which, you know, I have to talk about them, that's my team, is the the price of the team was pretty close to the price of one of the main chase cards. So I think the Pacer spot was selling for around $160, and that's kind of where Aaron Holiday RPAs have stabilized at. Um, I know some are, are selling in the $200 range, but if you follow a team like that, just be careful. If you just want the Aaron Holiday RPA, just go buy the Aaron Holiday RPA. It's not as fun, but you get what you want. Now, you're not going to see that with the big teams, though. Some of the higher RPAs are very hard to really get a grasp on, and they're hard to price because it doesn't seem like they've stabilized. Obviously, Lucas are still very expensive. That doesn't mean that it's not justified. The verdict is still out about him. Porter Jr. is in the $2,000 range. Um, Let's look at a guy like Marvin Bagley. And I'm using all of the, just the version to 99. I know there are other alternatives as well. But I've seen two sales, one at $1,300 and one at $2,500. A couple of DeAndre Ayton RPAs sold in the 2K range. I was talking with another poster on the blowout forums, and he, he said he had one, and he felt like he wasn't getting a fair price for it. 
So I, I chimed in and I, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I said, well, maybe the, the two $2,000 buyers jumped the gun. And some other people chimed in. We had a pretty good conversation. Some people decided that maybe his streaky signature affects the price. The beauty of the secondary market, though, in collectors is that people find value in cards in different ways. So personally, I value a good patch over serial numbering. Um, some guys would rather have a streaky auto with a low print run over a bold auto numbered 99. It just depends on what you're into. I'm more into aesthetics. Another poster chimed in that he thinks that with DeAndre Ayton selling in that range that people should actually be buying. And he had a couple of interesting takes. He said that people are getting destroyed on some of their group breaks and their personal case breaks and they need to try and recoup some of these funds so they're they're selling too early. And I'm going to quote him here. He says, I think the top five to six will rise from here rolling into the finals on hype. It also seems that the RPAs with a few weak patches have gotten clobbered. Those are sweet value plays if you believe in the player, if you ask me. And the types of players that I think he's talking about would be like Sexton, Bagley, Ayton, Knox, um, Jackson Jr., and so on. Another thing that you'll want to look at is that team still plays a big part. Maybe a, a guy like Alonzo Trier, if you're buying in for the Knicks, he got a lot of minutes this year with the Knicks. He averaged about 11 points per game. Um, he also signed a lot of his twice. You see a, a lot of them are signed on the patch. Um, I don't see many people talking about him, but he's still in that 250 to $300 range. And then the same day, one sold for 500 so I don't even know where that sale came from. Um, another guy that's probably around that same 250 to 300 range is Kevin Herter from the Hawks. For those of you that have been holding out for the lower tier players, some of those guys are finally dropping into the 50 to $75 range. You know, a guy like Gary Trent Jr. has played 111 career minutes. A guy like Melvin Frazier Jr., He's played 44 career minutes. These guys shouldn't be selling for insane prices. Another thing to look at, if, if you like the looks of the horizontal RPAs, they typically sell for considerably lower. Um, that wouldn't bother me at all. And for those of you that like consistency, if you started collecting in 2009, these are also horizontal. So it would really go with those. I think that might be a good approach as well if you want to get in on this. Another thing that I've noticed, I know I'm kind of all over the place here, is that people are charging way more for the lesser hits, and it seems like it's a desperate attempt to cover some of the price of their own box or their own break. Um, last week I talked about collectors and investors, but I feel like products like this almost force collectors to take on more of an investor's mindset. Maybe some of you guys are closer to that mindset than you realize. Sales overall don't seem great to me. And it seems like there's a disproportionate level of high asking prices to high dollar sales. The general theme that I'm noticing here is regardless if people are successful with their break or not, they seem to be hustling to generate money on one end or the other. So I see a lot of people at one point, or I saw a lot of people that were moving other cards to buy into National Treasures. And then I see a lot of people trying to move National Treasure singles or cards from their collection in an attempt to lick their wounds. And if you're a buyer of anything other than National Treasures right now, with the exception of playoff players, you're probably doing really well. A lot of this shuffling of money then, because it involves National Treasures in some capacity, it also involves group breaking. That's kind of why I wanted to talk about that as well. 
It's really funny to me that the original idea behind group breaking was that it was designed to help make the cost of a box more manageable. It was so people, they didn't have to change the face of their PC in order to join in on a new product. But Panini keeps putting out high-end products and upping the prices and you really can't blame them because people keep group breaking it and so they keep making it. And the group breakers have essentially enabled the thing they were trying to discourage to begin with, which was the unattainable box break. So their efforts to help make box breaks affordable have now priced them out of the highest end breaks. It's like we've entered the group breaking matrix. For the first time in a long time though, I've noticed that breakers are really struggling to hit their asking price for a high end break. I've often wondered if the breaking point, which there's no pun intended there, was coming soon. I think Panini is going to try and stretch this as far as they can to exploit Luca and then next year Zion, but collectors and now even investors are starting to vote a little more selectively with their wallets. I know this whole voting with your wallet idea is a tough sell if you're trying to collect a new player because how do you vote with your wallet if a company like Panini has a monopoly on cards that you want and they're the only ones that make cards of the guys you collect? I posed this question online this week and got a number of interesting responses. The truth of the matter is voting with your wallet can still work if you're selective about your purchases. Um, as one poster pointed out, I think it was Small Town, he said, it's the reason Vanguard didn't come back. It's the reason Preferred is no more. It's the reason Gold Standard got shelved and Eminence and Studio and Complete and on and on. Um, as consumers, we most definitely shape the types of products we get. We get endless Chrome style cards because we keep buying them. We get products like Absolute filled with junk player worn patches because we buy them. Now, I don't think a lot of people actually want National Treasures to disappear. We mentioned some of the sets that are no more, but I think people would still like to see it around and maybe would like to see it refined. If they aren't going to fix all of the sticker autos and the mismatched patches, then they have to change something else. Another poster made what I thought was a quality suggestion. He said that they should do something similar to the SB signatures, which is one to two cards in a box, you have one RPA and one random card at a lower box price. But my time here is up and there's so much more that could be said about national treasures and group breaking as a whole, but I want to turn this monologue into dialogue. I'd love to hear what you guys think about these topics on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. If you like the content I'm providing, please, please, please make sure and subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.